This is On Diversity, a podcast series by the Institute of Policy Studies, Singapore. I'm your host, Ong So Chin. Today's episode is called Art versus Culture. Is there a false divide? Art and culture are often mentioned in the same breath, but they do not mean the same thing. Mention art to some people and they will think of prestige projects served up in auditoriums or hushed spaces usually with a hefty price tag and often catering to an English-speaking elite set. Culture, on the other hand, conjures up images of community activities with an ethnic heritage. These could be dance performances, sing-alongs or even plays. Culture brings communities together and serves a social resilience purpose. While art can be cultural and culture can be artistic, one imagines this cross-pollination happens more easily in monocultural, ethnically homogenous societies. In multiracial Singapore, culture tends to be local, ethnic and community-based. In contrast, art is predominantly imported or it's seen and appreciated through a Western lens. Beethoven, Swan Lake, Shakespeare, Picasso. Of course, in reality, no one civilization holds a monopoly on art or culture. And over time, with globalization and the internet, these lines have blurred, thankfully. In Singapore, as COVID-19 disrupts the art and culture scene and even threatens its survival, it is perhaps timely to think outside the box and reflect on existing boundaries. With me today to discuss these big issues are two special guests. Clarissa Oon is a former arts journalist with The Straits Times who now heads communications and content at Esplanade Theatres on the Bay. Hi, Soch. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And Shaza Ishak is the Managing Director of Theatre Ekamatra, Singapore's longest-running Malay language theatre company. Hi, Shaza. Hey, hey. How's it going? Good. Welcome to the show, both of you. We have a huge topic to discuss today, so I guess we should start by diving into the heart of it. So, Shaza, I'm going to start with you. Is Theatre Ekamatra an arts company or a cultural company? I'm really nervous to answer that question. It's quite loaded. (laughs) Because I think the word culture will always be a point of contention for many people. It's so hard to define. But to give you a bit of an idea of where we are as a company, we were known for a really long time, over 20 or so years, as a Malay theatre company. And one of the greatest contentions from its very inception till right now has been in and around what Malay theatre is. And honestly, to this day, I don't think anyone has a clear definition to which everyone would subscribe. Mm. Is it the Malay language that makes Malay theatre Malay theatre? Is it meant to be representative of the Malay culture? Is it the people who are making the work that makes it Malay? But in the last 10 years, the company has gravitated more towards and now in fact defines itself as an ethnic minority theatre company. Has that made things a little bit easier? Well... To be fair, it doesn't actually mean that we're no longer Mm. a Malay theatre company, Mm -hmm. right? It just means that the part of our voice that we believe is most important at the moment is in the fact that the Malay voice is an ethnic minority one in Singapore. So I suppose like the socio-economic and political impact of being ethnic minority in Singapore, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Clarissa, what do you think about that? What Shaza said? I think it's very relevant because, you know, at this current juncture... There's a lot more hybridity in terms of identity mm. with growing, you know, transnational as well as, as inter-ethnic marriages and all that. Mm. Families becoming more and more blended. I think people are starting to think outside of the CMIO box mm-hmm. in a way. How would you define art versus culture or 
do you think they're interchangeable? So, I mean, there's how I would define it, which I think is, is quite simple. I would see it as, as art as the practice of specific art forms like theatre, music, dance or interdisciplinary. And I see culture as lived realities of a particular society or community. But I think what's more interesting for our discussion today is how Singapore has defined arts versus culture. And actually, there have been two very distinct phases. So in the 90s and the 2000s, the arts was front and centre with the Renaissance City Plan and the Ministry Mm -hmm. of Information and the Arts. So that was a time when we wanted to build Singapore into a global city of the arts and culture. And the arts was very much seen in terms of its economic value. But it was also a good time for the arts in terms of building up the vibrancy of the scene, professionalising the scene. This is to attract the creative class, so to speak. Yes, yes. A lot of it was about making Singapore an attractive place to live in Mm -hmm. for Singaporeans as well as for foreign talents. Then it changed post the general election of 2011 after that. So from 2012 onwards with the formation of the Ministry of Culture, Community and Youth, MCCY, and then Mm -hmm. the Arts and Culture Strategic Review before that, there was a shift in emphasis. The arts became seen as culture, and culture was about building social cohesion, feeling a sense of national pride, and and the arts had a value in helping to anchor people and making Singapore distinctive. So again, the arts were being seen Mm. for its kind of like its socio-economic value. But on the ground, I think like what Shaza says, Actually, there's a real blurring in terms of the arts and culture. It's a whole spectrum. And like at Esplanade, what we do as the National Performing Arts Centre, we present genre-based festivals, which are on theatre or Mm -hmm. dance. But we also present cultural festivals. But these cultural festivals also bring together arts. And they started out originally more than 15 years ago. So it's Hua'i, Chinese Festival of Arts, mm-hmm. Bistaraya, Malay Festival of Arts, and Kala Utsavam, which mm-hmm. is the Indian Festival of Arts. They started out because we wanted to bring the arts to where the people are celebrating in their everyday lives. Right. They're like festivals. Ethnic, ethnic arts festivals, weren't they? In a way? Correct, yeah. yeah. So uh, like Hua'i is held around the time of Chinese New Year mm-hmm. and Besta during around the time of Hari Raya and, and so forth. Yeah. But over the years, they've also evolved to sort of become expressions of the identity of a diaspora and yeah. connecting Singapore artists with artists of the region. Mm. So whether it's the Nusantara or the Malay Archipelago mm-hmm. or the Chinese diaspora or the Indian and South Asian diaspora. And the kind of arts in these festivals, actually, they defy any kind of boxing, I think, mm. because there are traditional arts and classical arts and their companies who do those, but they're also experimental, edgy kind of art forms. Right. And one example would be for example, three years ago, during Pesteraya, we presented Setan Jawa, which was Garin Nugroho, who's an Indonesian mm-hmm. film director. He, mm-hmm. he did a, a black and white film. It was screened on stage and it was accompanied by the live performance of a gamelan orchestra and the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. And mm-hmm. it was a score composed by a Javanese and an Australian composer. So right. if you see Pesteraya as a Malay festival, this was really sort of like experimental and, and interdisciplinary. And right. another example... Hawaii last year did a production called Dear John by a Taiwanese company called Move Theatre and it was inspired by John Cage. Mm. It was sort of like an installation. You walked into the studio, there were... And nothing happens. Not not quite (laughs) nothing happens. You know, John Cage's thing was a deconstructed piano and and, uh, making music from found objects. So as you enter the space, you kind of affect, you know, influence Mm. the music that's being played. And it, it was nothing in it that was obviously 
Chinese or mm-hmm. about Chinese culture. Mm-hmm. There was no text. So although these three festivals are commonly seen as the CMI in O, mm-hmm. but actually when it comes down to it, the diversity and the richness of the art actually defies that kind of categorization. Mm. Mm. I think the Esplanade is a very good example because as a physical space, there's like fantastic studios and recital studios and theatres there, right? But it's also common spaces for cultural performances and all that and and your programming as well. There's this, uh, it's not only cross-cultural, it's interdisciplinary as well. Yes. But I just want to throw it back to Shaza. I mean, that's all well and good on the top level in principle, but how does that gel with Ekamatra's objectives and challenges on the ground? Well, something that Clarissa mentioned earlier about social cohesion, I think, is particularly important to us. What we think is important right now is that when we are given opportunities to platform voices, it is not just meant to be representative of only the Malay community, but also Mm. the ethnic minority one in general. Mm -hmm. I think all of us have more of a vested interest right now in the socio-political situation in Singapore, you know. And there are actually so many parallels to our struggles and any work we do should seek to address all of us and not just a, a segment of us. But we're always in a bit of an existential twilight zone, you know. <laughs> uh, when, when you're seen as a Malay theatre company, you mm-hmm. suddenly are also held accountable to what people feel are mm-hmm. synonymous to being a Malay in Singapore. Mm-hmm. And that's like, um, such as being a Malay Muslim, mm-hmm. or even what sort of art forms that you practice. Mm-hmm. It's complex because there's so many layers Is it in ethnicity, the way you experience your nationality? Mm -hmm. You know, the culture in general is so complex. And then when you throw art into it as well, there's no answer yet, I feel, for me. yeah. So so you feel accountable not only to the Malay community, Malay Muslim community, but I mean also there's a certain perception among non-Malays and Mm -hmm. non-Muslims as well of what you are supposed to be, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. So they put you in a certain box, I guess, and does that make it hard for you to grow? Yeah, it does because there are certain topics that people feel we shouldn't be addressing or there are certain topics that people feel we need to address because we are seen as a Malay theatre company. Like what? Can you give some examples? For example, a lot of people have been asking me how come we've not done a play about how people have gotten very serious about the halal signs on food you know (laughs) but but you know that there's more than that but there's always that baggage of okay this is an issue that's very important to malay muslims how come you are not talking about it how come you're not dealing with it and in the same breath when we talk about sensitive issues such as suicide Mm. we also get into some situations where people go like you shouldn't be portraying Malay Muslims as committing suicide Mm. because that doesn't make us look good right Mm. you know yeah so it's a Tough line. It's like the burden of representation. That's right. Exactly. Right. But also, I mean, I guess on a very functional, practical level, I mean, we're talking about growing in terms of your your programming, but what about just surviving? Mm -hmm. Is funding an issue, for example? Yeah. Actually, that positioning of being a Malay theatre company for quite a long time has always been problematic for us in reaching out to a wider audience Mm -hmm. and even fundraising from a wider pool of potential donors simply because what we do is not what people expect us to do. Mm -hmm. But that's not to say that defining ourselves as an ethnic minority company doesn't come with its own set of problems. Mm -hmm. But actually talking about fundraising and arts philanthropy, one of the things I'm quite obsessed about (laughs) is the state of arts philanthropy be in ethnic minority communities here. Mm. Yeah. Is it in a bad state? Well, it's nascent, first mm-hmm. of all. Mm-hmm. But, you know, whenever the National Arts Council's 
patron of the arts list comes out, mm. I always look at it to see who's giving to the arts and and basically general capoing. La. <laughs> and what I've noticed for the last few years is that very few givers are of ethnic minority backgrounds. Mm. And maybe consequently, very few give to arts companies which are ethnic minority focused. Mm. And this is not a phenomenon that's unique to Singapore. Mm -hmm. But what I think is scary is that we don't have enough information around it or even any sort of acknowledgement, which to me means that we're not making any headway in fixing the issue. Mm. And there are very real repercussions to this, you know, like without raised income, arts companies just can't survive, especially in times like this, where we are not able to even earn mm. through our regular ways. Right. What kind of information would you be looking for? Giving habits, I think, is really important. Uh, okay. So, for example, I know it's a really uncomfortable thing to find out, but who are giving to the arts in terms of their backgrounds and why, for example, mm. Malay is not giving to the arts. And what does this mean mm -hmm. to companies that have more Malay audiences? Not just Ekamatra. I don't think about it just through the lens of the company that I run. Mm -hmm. But I've often been really worried about the fact that there has not been an Indian theatre company on the major grant mm. scheme for a really long time as well. Things like that. Right. So who are your funders and supporters? Just well, out of curiosity. Well, 50% or so of our audience is Malay and then the other 50% is non-Malay. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and that, that sort of changed when Zizi Aza took over, I believe, in 2009. And she started working more with non-Malay collaborators. Well, we've always done that, but mm -hmm. there was more of a um, focus on opening our doors up. Mm -hmm. uh, not just to non-Malay collaborators, but also in terms of the sort of festivals that we were involved in. Right. And then there's the spillover. When, when you've watched us at the Singapore Theatre Festival, you right. go like, oh, actually... These works are quite relevant to me as well. And then you continue watching yeah. Eka shows. Yeah. And I guess the Esplanade is a good platform. Eka yeah, Matra has definitely. performed at the Esplanade, right? Yes, or, yes, yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. We have presented and also commissioned uh, Eka Matra for Pesaraya, the Malay Festival of mm -hmm, Arts. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've also presented Eka Matra in the studios, which is the theatre festival. Right. Yeah. So that, I guess, gives you a wider audience in that sense. Shaza, you did mention that you had a fundraiser, your first fundraiser for Ekamatra recently? Uh, well, I started seriously fundraising only in 2018, which I think is something else to highlight in that in this segment of the arts, people don't know enough about fundraising. And when I ask around, because I always thought, oh my God, okay, this is an Ekamatra problem or this is a Shaza problem. We <laughs> don't know how to do this, right? So I was asking around and I realised that, first of all, not a lot of us are fundraising because we simply don't know how. Mm. And then the second thing is that even when we do fundraise, there are not enough people who are used to giving to the arts. So mm. there's a very limited success rate of these things. So how did you do your fundraiser? So this year... Just recently, we concluded Amboy, the fundraising campaign, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we managed to raise $10,000 really fast. In fact, in about two weeks, we fundraised $10,000. But someone mentioned to me when it was done, they said, well, you know, 10000 is not even a table at the... Well, it uh, is one table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not even... Yeah, uh, it's hardly a table at Wild Rice's mm. Rice Ball, things like that. Mm. And it's true because we need way more than $10,000 to sustain ourselves 
But see, this is where the maturity of arts philanthropy is in the segment that we serve. Yeah. So we have to grow with yeah. our audiences as well. Yeah, it's sounding like yeah, we need to sort of break out of these perception boxes, mm-hmm. right? I think maybe raising awareness is definitely a part of it and letting the public know that other kinds of arts companies exist yeah. that are not necessarily in English language or performed in big auditoriums and theatres, right? So... How many arts companies are there on the NAC list? Do you, does anyone know? And how many are ethnic minority companies? Well, as of 2020, I believe there are 50 companies on the major grant scheme mm-hmm. and five ethnic minority focused. Okay. These are made up of Indian dance companies, Malay dance or percussion companies right. and Theta Ekamatra. Right. Yep. Ekamatra is the only ethnic minority theatre company on this list. Yeah. Okay. So I would say perhaps, okay, first of all, there's obviously a small representation mm-hmm. of ethnic minority companies. But one theatre company, I guess, could that be a linguistic thing, a language thing? Because I'm assuming it's easier to sell dance and music across different types of people because there's no language, there's no linguistic barrier, there are no subtitles to read. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, I think when it's language-based, sometimes it's yeah. inherently class-based and that language definitely contributes to that, you know. Mm. But also the cost, I think. The fact is that you can make music on your own, but I don't know if you can do that with theatre, right. you know. Your collaborators, your audience is yes, what yeah. makes it theatre. Yeah, your crew yeah. as well. Exactly. There's a lot more people involved and a lot more people on the payroll, I guess. Exactly. And I guess to apply for funds, mm-hmm. I'm assuming there's certain criteria. Are these criteria easy or hard to meet? if you're a small ethnic minority arts company? Well, putting aside artistic quality and relevance of the work that you're making, I think being organised in terms of your administration and funds management Mm. and governance, general professionalism, I suppose, is really important in being considered for these sort of grants. Which makes sense, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think there's a general point to be made, like what Shaza said about how to be eligible and to secure the major company grant, which is very important for a company's sustainability because I think the grant in some cases can make up as much as one third to half of Mm, a company's annual income, right? Mm -hmm. But to qualify and to secure it, you need to have a sort of a professional structure Mm -hmm. in terms of like board of directors, full-time staff, or to demonstrate your ability to raise funds, even your... IPC status, Institute of Public Character yep. status, yeah, mm-hmm. keeping good books, you know, right. and all these sort of, they create barriers for... But they are necessary as well, right? Yes, because they are they, necessary. Because you need to be accountable for public funds. Yeah, right? but they, they do create financially for certain types of groups. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, ethnic minority groups could be one, or traditional arts groups in, in general who are working off a smaller base and whose members, you know, may not be so invested in going down that professional route or younger and less established arts groups in general without the experience and networks of the sort of more established groups. So in a way, Mm -hmm. the the gulf between the established groups who have been major companies for a very long time Mm -hmm. and the newer groups who may be doing interesting work, good work artistically, but... They have no time to do all the other stuff. Yeah, cannot rise to that kind of, that bar in terms of, yeah, the financial, the professional professionalization kinds of expectations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And with different companies, there are unique barriers, right? For example, for ethnic minority companies, it's really hard to make art sustainably, like what Clarissa mentioned about the limited audience reach, the limited pool of potential donors, because for this segment, as a society, I feel we are not 
ready enough to embrace or listen to each other more. Mm-hmm. We think Indian dance is for Indians to enjoy and mm-hmm. that's only Indians should buy tickets or donate to these companies mm-hmm. or that the ethnic minority stories that theatre companies tell are meant to be told just to ethnic minorities who face these mm-hmm. issues. But that's simply not true. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think also people don't realise that it's again, it's, it's these boxes, right? Mm-hmm. People think of ethnic arts sometimes as traditional arts, but actually the work may be quite contemporary. So has NAC been supporting the arts companies in professionalising or trying to get over these humps? Yeah, I mean, in my personal experience, to be very fair to the National Arts Mm -hmm. Council, they've been incredibly instrumental in keeping Mm -hmm. ECA alive and supporting us in many ways to Mm -hmm. professionalise, which is what they need us to do in order to continue supporting us, right? For example, I started the company without any real understanding of how to run an arts company. Mm -hmm. I had a diploma in hospitality and tourism management. (laughs) Yeah, when I had proven that I was in for the long haul, they gave me quite a few opportunities to professionalise and this included like attending overseas arts markets. Mm. Uh, they supported me in an international fellowship. Mm-hmm. And in fact, last year, I completed my master's in creative producing with the support of the NEC postgraduate scholarship. Even right now, in COVID times, I'm attending courses that are supported under the CDSA scheme. You know, So I do feel that I am who I am as an arts leader and ACA is where it is today, mm-hmm. also in part because of NAC's investment. But the thing, I guess, is right now, because of where I am, I'm thinking of how I can help figure out other ways that other companies can get mm. this sort of support as well. Right. I think also if you look at the major company list, mm-hmm. there have been, been strides made in terms of the diversity of representation on the list mm-hmm. in the sense that you do not just have arts companies who make art, also intermediary type companies. So like the Intercultural Theatre Institute, mm-hmm. that's on the list and mm-hmm. that offers professional actor training, yeah. which is inspired by traditional Asian art forms and also drawing from Western theatre mm-hmm. techniques. So it's not putting out art in the sense of art to be consumed by an audience, but it's really building the capabilities mm. for actors who will feed the sector and future art making, right? So I think it's great that, you know, mm. you have companies like that on the list. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder also from the NAC's perspective, whether there could be bridging grants mm. for other sort of like intermediary companies or other smaller companies who are doing good work artistically, but still have not gotten yeah. the major company status yet. Yeah, so it's, it's yeah. you don't just drop off, but there's another step that you can climb. Yeah, because on the after way up. the seed grant, right? If you just drop off, it's kind of like a loss. Yeah, yeah. For, for everyone, you're kind of really. like taking two steps forward and then taking five steps back. Yeah. yeah. So why don't you continue their progression, right? Yeah, which is what happened to Arts Equator. I feel quite passionately about arts writing, having mm. been an arts journalist before, and I think all of us know that arts criticism it's is important. It's, it's vital. Yes. It's lifeblood of the scene. It keeps us growing. Keeps us on our toes. Challenges us as it's a sounding as board. Yeah, yeah and yeah. that happened to Art Equator too. They were on the seed grant, but after that they didn't, I mean, in their note, they said that they didn't make the cut for funding to the next level. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm wondering, yeah, you know, is there a possibility for the, like yeah. Like a bridging grant, like a little booster seat. Yeah, <laughs> or, for, or for the major company yeah. grants, the notion of, of the kinds of companies that you recognise to be widened to take into account the, the diversity of the ecosystem and, yeah. and what is needed. Mm. And a more nuanced understanding, right, like of how different companies mature at different rates and we need to have a greater understanding in general of different types of issues mm-hmm. that different companies face, such as issues around professionalising mm-hmm. or around arts philanthropy. 
we're not all on equal ground. Some of us have the baggage of having to effect a paradigm shift in order to fundraise, for example, you know. Yeah. So I think support can look very different for different companies and there in, I think, lies a possible solution. Right. Yeah. And also we need the kinds of research and data mm. to help you in work like fundraising, right? A more yeah. nuanced look at that. Yeah. 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 So I'm wondering, has COVID-19 changed things? Has it been a democratising sort of factor because everyone's kind of suffering, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, COVID-19 was was huge. <laughs> I mean, basically all the arts companies were thrown into a tailspin. And, yes. and, I mean, so for, for, for Esplanade, I mean, one of the, the things about Esplanade has always been, I mean, we've always, you know, made this promise. Every day of the week, you can just walk into the Esplanade and there will be a performance for you to catch, mm. whether it's a free performance in one of our public spaces or whether it's a ticketed performance in our venue. We've mm. always believed in making arts right. available for everyone, right? But then with, with COVID, first with the cancellation of performances and then eventually with Circuit Breaker when we had to close down venues and there were no more live performances, mm-hmm. then the question was, okay, what next? And then for us, I think it really accelerated our digitalization. Mm-hmm. So we already had built a streaming and archival site called Esplanade Offstage. Mm-hmm. We had launched it somewhat serendipitously a few months before COVID, who would have thought, in October last year. Mm. And then, yeah, just within a few months, COVID hit us. And so we were fortunate in having this platform. Mm-hmm. And I think as National Performing Arts Centre, it's been important for us to to use that platform to enable artists, arts groups, Singapore artists and arts groups to put their work out for a wider audience mm. and also to enable Singaporeans to be able to access arts from their homes or on the go, even though you can't catch a live performance in theatre, but you can yep. do it online. Yeah, I think globally everyone just went digital, right? Yeah. So was that a good thing, Shaza? I don't know, you know, if COVID was a democratising factor. (laughs) I actually, I think I disagree with that Mm -hmm. because different companies have different resources available Mm -hmm. to them. Like when COVID hit, a lot of Singaporean companies were putting up their archived productions. But with the exception of a production that we had done with Esplanade, we couldn't put up any of the other productions that we've archived because of the quality of the videos that we had filmed in weren't necessarily a quality that we would have wanted to put up for our audiences. Mm. And some people said that it was an oversight of ours. But given the opportunity to play my theme or archive in super high quality, Mm -hmm. I would always choose my theme because we just didn't have enough money even pre-COVID to do it the way that other companies have done it. And that's about the archived productions. But even moving to creating works online, things like our ability to use different technologies that are available, our access to good microphones or Mm. or cameras is vastly different from one company to another. Yeah. So you're saying like a different arts companies are at different stages of their development? Definitely. And some are in a slower stage of development because they've been put in certain boxes Mm -hmm. which have prevented their growth, right? Yeah. So I guess this whole conversation seems to be leading to uh, sort of a breaking down of barriers. And I guess society is becoming more diverse and that's sort of permeating into art making. And I mean, I think Clarissa, we've had this conversation before. I mean, it's Drama Box also now no longer positions itself as a Chinese language Yeah, that's company, right. right. So, I mean, in my personal capacity as a writer, I contributed an essay on Drama Box to mm-hmm. their upcoming 30th anniversary volume. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, something I found out, I mean, having followed the company's growth over the years, mm-hmm. is that while they started out and were very much originally a Chinese language theatre company, like Ekamatra, in a sense, they've also repositioned themselves. Yep. They're now socially engaged, themselves as a socially engaged 
company. Yeah. They're very much about unearthing marginalised narratives. So the language issue is no longer a front and, and centre, nor even text, really. Mm. They're about doing work in community spaces, so unconventional spaces outside of traditional mm-hmm. theatres, and doing work that involves the participation of the community, raising issues and unearthing marginalised narratives mm-hmm. in our history and in our society. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, within the arts, you do see groups who are evolving and their, their notion of art making is going beyond kind of like a ethnic cultural frame. Yeah. And I think this is a good evolution. And I think it's happening in other art forms, right? So, for example, the Singapore Chinese Orchestra, <laughs> we're talking about music, they've performed with Joshua Bell, right? Yeah, uh, yes. And Teng On Som uh, plays pop songs and they they play with Chinese instruments, but they've collaborated with a Tamil singer called Shabir recently. Yeah. So there's a lot of that going on. I guess theatre companies, it sounds like theatre companies are also going to be doing more of that, right? Yeah, I think so. It's also a part of our journey of our decolonization, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and and I think this, you mentioned this CMIO thing um, and what it has translated into in the past and even right now is a a differentiation of opportunities Mm -hmm. and that's where there are issues that permeate till right now. So I think it's not a matter of whether this could be the first area, but I think it should be. Mm-hmm. We're seen as a relatively progressive industry, so we need to really... So remove the CMIO category Absolutely. for the arts yeah. and culture. Yeah. yeah, I think it's the mental barrier as well of, of just removing that mm-hmm. would actually help quite a lot psychologically yeah. as well. Yeah. But having said that, there will always be artists and arts groups who are interested in investigating their heritage, who are Mm -hmm. working in traditional art forms. And that's fine too. I mean, you know, there will always be the likes of of Sri Warisan, which is like a flag bearer for Malay dance or Chinese opera companies. That that all adds to the richness of of who we are as a society. But it's just making room for for more diverse notions of arts and culture. And I think actually to go back to what we were talking about, digital... I think there's actually a lot of potential in digital for for audience development because I think by making your content available online uh, mm-hmm. to be accessed free and all that, it opens the work up to be accessed by many times more people than would have originally caught it in the theatre for two nights or two shows or whatever it is. Yeah, that potential is is undeniable. But I think, like what Shaza said earlier, so resources is one thing and just for all of us, whether as, as an art centre like Exponate or, or theatre company trying to come to grips with just how much resources digital will suck up versus how much you can get out of it in financial terms because if it's free, so what, what's the potential in terms of monetizing content? So something at Esplanade we've also been looking at is trying, seeing how we can slowly start to build audience habits for ticketed content. So in May, actually, we were the first in the arts to do it. Basically, we worked with Cystic Live. At the time, it was brand new, a brand new live streaming platform from Cystic. We streamed three productions from our cultural festivals, actually. So one from, from Pesaraya, one from Kala Utsavam, and one from Hawaii. And it was pay as you will. So the proceeds from that went to the three arts companies. So that was Nadi Singapura, Apsaras Arts, and Toy Factory. And I mean, that was, was very revealing because we found that more than 90% of the audiences were watching it for the first time. They hadn't seen the original Mm -hmm. production. But at the same time, the willingness to pay a majority, 
and this was also shown in a separate survey, wouldn't pay more than $20. So we've come to realise, okay, so if, if you want to create a, a paid experience, how do we create like certain exclusive channels or a good enough experience on digital that fits the medium that will make people feel, okay, you know, I, it's, it's compelling enough for me to pay and, and to want to watch throughout. Because obviously when you pay, you are more prepared to watch from beginning to end rather than drop off halfway, which you might do otherwise with so many other digital distractions, right? So something that we're thinking about is how to build these audience habits as well. I think that's a good thing. So I guess I just want to tie us back to the title of this episode. So art versus culture. Is there a false divide then? What do you guys think? Yeah, definitely for me, I think it is a false divide. And I mean, I would very much like to see Singapore move away from instrumentalizing the arts for, I mean, at the highest level, um, these pitches are, are there for a reason because people can identify with them. And it seems like a lot of Singaporeans still can't see arts, you know, as essential as, you know, the, the recent, <laughs> I mean, survey in, in the Straits Times when artists were sort of ranked as, as yeah, the least essential I think essential that was an unfortunate profession, <laughs> right? Yeah. It was unfortunately played up uh, yeah. in the wrong way, I yeah, think. Yeah, it was unfortunate, yeah. but I think it was also revealing of certain mindsets and it also shows how much more we need to do in, in the arts to... I guess to show people how rich and how complex and how revealing and inspiring the arts can be of our everyday realities and where we're going. And I just hope that we can move beyond sort of seeing the arts in instrumental terms, like whether it's yeah. socioeconomic or whatever, and just see it as a very true and fundamental and real expression of, of who we are. Shraza, what do you think? I completely agree. It doesn't at all mean that different companies wanting to look at different parts of the heritage and, mm -hmm. and practicing that traditional art forms should be done away with. I think that only adds to the richness of the culture that yeah, we have in, in Singapore, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And this It's like Spanish people still need to do flamenco, yeah, right? Exactly. So. <laughs> yeah, and I think I feel actually what you mentioned about the survey and how the arts was seen as um, non-essential. I think the issue really maybe is that people don't know what constitutes art and how much they consume art on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. It's just that really. It's it's a really it's just a misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah. so it's just basically just just break down the barriers, <laughs> yeah. the mental barriers. Just go and watch something because yeah. you enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't matter nuanced, whether it's called art or culture. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. More nuanced yeah. understanding of the art. Exactly. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah, and stop putting things in boxes yeah. because that sort of uh, limits potential in Absolutely. many ways. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So so it's been a great discussion. But before we end the program, I want to play a quick game. Okay. okay. So I'm going to mention some names and I want you to reply if they are art or culture really quickly. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> okay. So here we go. Art or culture. Hamilton. Art. Art. Okay. Off centre by the necessary stage. Art. Art. Emily of Emerald Hill. Culture. Art. <laughs> P. Ramley. Art. Art. Sesame Street. Culture. Culture. Mahabharata. Culture. Culture. Merchant of Venice. Art. Oh, okay, that's a trick. Because <laughs> Shakespeare was pretty much a popular yes. playwright in his day. So I guess, so there you have it, folks. It's not that easy sometimes, I guess, to draw a line between what is art and what is culture and does it really matter in the long term, right? So I'd like to thank my guests, Clarissa and Shaza, for their time thank you today. So, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you for being here and for being such good sports. <laughs> and thank you all for listening in. See you in the next episode of On Diversity. On Diversity is a podcast inspired by the Institute of Policy Studies Managing Diversity's research program. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. 
swipe on the cover art to see the show notes for more info on this episode or visit us on our website, ipscommons.sg. Do subscribe to be notified when we have a new episode. And if you like what you heard, tell a friend or give us a five-star review. It really helps other people find us. I'm your host, Ong So Chin, reminding you to always keep your body healthy and your mind open. Goodbye. Goodbye.